Welcome, guys. We have a podcast with an old friend of mine, Megan Shaler. Megan is a doctoral student in the biomedical sciences program at the University of Michigan with a focus in molecular physiology. As a scientist, she researches intestinal health while navigating higher education with ADHD. Um, so it's so great to have you on the podcast, Megan. Thanks for, Thanks for joining Megan. time out of your busy schedule to um, get on here with us. Uh, Sam and I are super into, well, I mean, we like health. We're interested in health <laughs> and we listen to a lot of experts like yourself on like podcasts like Joe Rogan. So um, you're our first real like science expert we get to have on. <laughs> Uh, so that's really exciting for us because we've yeah. always wanted to have like someone that actually does research in science in the field. So thanks so much. Um, let's start out with these uh, fun pop questions. I call them like icebreaker questions. And they just uh, they're in the different like interests categories that we talk about on the podcast. They're all kind of random questions. Um, just answer what first comes to your mind. Um, and answer that these more quickly. You don't have to go into like a whole lot of depth with these questions because they're not like really about your expertise. Sure. But, um, okay. What's a, but they can be involved with your expertise like this one maybe. Um, favorite it. hardware, software, or app that's not super common. Like don't say your iPhone, but is there anything that you have that you really like? Um. Honestly, this is a nerdy answer, but I really uh, get a lot out of Slack. It stops me from having a million emails in my inbox. And uh, so that's my, I'd say that's my favorite. Slack, the work messaging app? Yeah. I use that. I just started using that. <laughs> yeah, it's a boring one, but it's pretty useful. Yeah, that's really cool. What all do you do on there? Just message people or... So I have two different labs that I work in. And so all of the people in each lab are connected through Slack. And so we send individual messages and we're able to keep up on like the, um, all of the meetings and I can ask people for help with experiments and things like that. And so it seems to be pretty useful. Um, apart from one. the regular ones. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, music section what is an artist that you've been listening to a lot lately? Um, well, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, so I've been listening to that album, her ever, evermore. Um, but I also love Lauren Daigle, um, so I listen to her quite a bit. I love Taylor Swift, too, as I'm sure you know. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, health. What is something you do to take care of your health? Um... Recently, I've been trying to cut out time to read books, like personal personal growth books. Um, so, but with a busy schedule, I have to kind of schedule that in. Um, so I've been trying to be more mindful of that. Um, but so that's what I do. I also have gotten into adult coloring. Um, so I color while I watch TV and just relax. Um, but that'd be a big part of my mental health, I would say. Uh, I like that. I like that too. Yeah. What is one of your favorite places to buy clothes? Oh gosh. Um, I would say just old Navy, probably not the most interesting. 
That's funny because his roommate. Um, they have really good stuff. I didn't know. Yeah, just, my, my roommate just started working there. And so he's been oh, really? getting both of us some stuff from there. And I was surprised yeah. at how good it is. Yeah. Yeah. With the pandemic, he um, his roommate was a manager at a restaurant and it was shut down. So he oh, no. had to take on a new job and um, it's got some perks. Lots of <laughs> <bet>. Nice clothes. <laughs> um what oh who is your celebrity crush you had to pick oh gosh <laughs> putting me on the spot um sorry I can't uh Rachel's well, Rachel's was Zach Efron okay that's a good um I love who do I love um so not a celebrity crush but I love Demi Lovato um I'm pretty impressed with how she's handled everything in her life. And I, I think she's a pretty good role model. So. Yeah. And she's hot. So (laughs) (laughs) I can say that, but he can't, that's the rule here. That's fair. fair. (laughs) Um, what is, what is, oh, you mentioned self-improvement. Um, what is your favorite self-improvement book you've read or just a philosophy that has been really influential in your life? Um, I'm big into the concept of grace, I would say. So um, I have a couple books about that and kind of like developing my emotional intelligence. Um, I found that that's really helped me interact and like communicate with my uh, friends and coworkers. Um and so I just, a philosophy I would guess is I just try to remind myself that um, I, you know, to try to be forgiving and um, kind of try to, if someone hurts my feelings or something, try to think of what could be happening in their life to where they could have uh, chosen to do the things that they do. Um, and that really adds a sense of calm, um, taking that approach to things, I would say. I like that a lot, especially um, I'm sure you're since, you know, you're getting your doctorate, you're around people that are always like, what's the word escalating their book smarts and their recent, like their, that intelligence. But the fact that you've focused, taken time to also focus on your emotional intelligence. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah, I'm luckily to, lucky to be in a lab uh, surrounded with other grad students that also like place the priority in developing their emotional intelligence. And so that's really been a huge help for me learning how to, you know, develop really good friendships and um, things like that. And so, yeah, definitely we're taught the science stuff, but we're not taught in a doctorate how to be like emotionally mature or how to treat people. Um, so that's something that as a scientist, I, I try to make a point to focus on outside of science. Yeah. I had never even really heard the word emotional intelligence until he used it around me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, why isn't that something like we talk about more when it comes to like intelligence, you know, like I never thought of myself as intelligent because (laughs) in the book smart area, I'm not really like super intelligent, but I think I have um, a good emotional intelligence, you know, when I'm like one-on-one with someone. Yeah. Which in my opinion, that's equally important. Awkward on some, but. (laughs) Yeah. That's just as important in my book. So um, that's not a bad thing at all. 
So um, what are um, what are the two labs that you and that's in? that's we're done with the pop yeah. questions now. Just okay. Yeah, that, that <laughs> All right. <good>. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so um, what are the, the two labs? Yeah. Go ahead. That I work in. Um, so the first one I work in on a daily basis is um, researching aging and how to um, using model organisms like um, they primarily primarily use microscopic worms. Um, to figure out how to make an organism stay healthier longer into their life. And so the goal with aging labs isn't really to just extend your life. You know, no one wants to be in, have their physical health fail just to live longer, you know? So we're more focused on making sure that you can maintain your health longer in your life. So that's one aspect, um, one lab that I work in. And then the other one is kind of completely different. It's focused more on intestinal health. Um, so they primarily study colon cancer um, and the in specifically how colon cancer starts to develop. Um, and so that's where my intestinal um, focus comes in. And so I'm my research project kind of combines the both. And I'm lucky to have fantastic mentors um, from both labs. Um, so my research specifically looks at the intestine and how its health and integrity changes as a person ages or when they undergo different environmental stresses um, and how that can hurt the intestine. Wow, very cool. Um, And can you kind of, so that's your thesis? Yeah, that's my dissertation. Or dissertation. Um, And what was your hypothesis? Like, so at at what stage of the um, dissertation are you? So I'm in my third year. Um, So we take classes our first year and then we go through, we have to pass um, exams um, that can kind of show that you're ready to be able to take on a project by yourself. Um, So I've passed those criteria. I finished all my classes. So now I just do research full time. Um, So I've over the last year and a half in my lab, I've kind of worked hard to get my project up and running um, and get kind of a good base foundation of data so I can um, tailor my hypotheses more um, more specifically to try to get at exactly what's happening in the intestine. Um, and so the goal with this research would be to, if we can figure out how the intestine breaks down and the things that can speed that breakdown um, or make it worse, then we can discover things that will help prevent that breakdown of the intestine. Um, so I've got... Um, I would say I'm about to start the, the in-depth research of developing my dissertation. So I've got a lot of the preliminary data enough to be able to think what's going on. And now I'm about to dive into the more specific experiments, I would say. And, um, in a general sense, it, I mean, it sounds like maybe you're still nailing down the hypothesis, but can you kind of give us a general idea of what, sure. what it is? Sure. So my, um, I would say my kind of overarching or central hypothesis is that the um, the interaction of the gut bacteria in um, your intestine can, when you have an organism that is um, less protected from the environmental stressors that one would undergo, that that eventually leads to their intestine the integrity of it to start to break down. And then that can become pathogenic. And I don't know if you've heard of like leaky gut syndrome, 
I was going to um, ask if that's the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's the same concept. Yeah. So we want to keep the things inside of the intestines there. And as soon as they are able to start leaking into the body cavity or into the organism, then they can cause problems. So um, my hypothesis um, studying the genes that I study um, is how to maintain that intestinal barrier. Um, so we prevent things from leaking out into the rest of the body and causing those problems. And um, so like, it's obvious to me, right. That it's like a, a large part of it is, is it probably influenced by diet, but like, what are some other things that influence like the, the integrity of, of uh, intestine of an organism? Sure. So um, they, not only the diet, but also like the different populations of bacteria. So there's a ton of different bacteria in your intestine. And so it's like kind of billi- is it like sure. billions? Isn't it like billions of different ones? It's yeah, like, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's so I've like learned like some stuff about the gut biome, but mm-hmm. um, not, I don't know, not that much, but it's, I, I, I kind of understand, I understand like conceptually, I guess what it is. Sure. Sure. Which honestly, <laughs> if you don't do the research, of it, you don't really need to understand like the nitty gritty. Um, like if you can read a research article and get the main main gist of it, you know, that's going to be enough to be able to help you. Yeah. Like determine what diet things you want to change. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I only have a bachelor's degree, but I did it in psychology. So we had to, I actually worked in a oh, lab cool. for a couple of years, but so I had to read a lot of research papers and then that kind of like, helped me just to know how to do that once I kind of became obsessed with nutrition, like I said. Yeah, Um, that's something that a lot of people don't know how to like, you know, pick out the parts that are meaningful because there's a lot of like science jargon, you know, um, that is important for other scientists to read, but for like the general population, it's, it's really a good skill to be able to read a research article and take the important things from it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, and I, and I'm not good at this. I mean, it's, but like, it's, I, cause I see it on like YouTube. I got a lot, I watch a lot of like YouTube nutrition videos and stuff. And like, there's people who will like summarize a study and like, like most people who are just like, Oh my God, they're using research. Like they must be right. And they must know what they're talking about, but it's so complicated to actually analyze like someone's methods. Like it's, like I said, I yeah. can't, I'm not saying I can do that, but like, it's, it's very, very hard. I mean, you have to, you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You have to have it, it is, to be able to do very it. Very complex. And that's basically what the first couple of years in my PhD program is teaching us is how to like be able to critique other people's research and methods. So just because a paper has been published in a like scientific journal doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best um, that you can take the result is gold, right? So you need to still kind of maintain the ability to decide whether or not the evidence backs up what they're saying. And that's a really um, important skill that we're learned or we're we're learned, we're taught um, in my program is how to identify where we could have made things better in the methodology and like how we can design experiments to really tell us the most that we can get out of these experiments. Um, yeah, but that's a really good skill that you've um, you've developed for sure. Yeah, the phrase I've I'm learned is it, but... correlation doesn't mean causation. 
my gosh, I'm so proud of you. That's like day one, what we're taught. Like just yeah. because- A lot of people like, don't even understand that. I mean, it's- They don't. Yeah. That's yeah. all I've and, learned. <laughs> hey, that's good. And it's that's partially, I mean, I feel kind of a, a responsibility to kind of help my, the people around me and the people in my life like understand part of that because I think there's a big lack, like we have all of the science jargon and all of these papers and there's kind of a break between that and the general population. And so I think I personally feel kind of a responsibility to help bridge that gap, you know, so our science can be um, used by more people, you know. Um, but part of that will be will include teaching people um, that haven't been taught how to read articles and how to get things from them. Yeah. I think that's so cool. I mean, I completely agree with you because that that's something that I saw just when I was you know working in labs and doing getting my bachelor's like like there's, it's like so separate the world of like academia where people are on the like cutting edge of making these yeah. groundbreaking, groundbreaking discoveries and like falsifying different things that maybe we used to think were true. And, mm -hmm. um, and then there's like common sense, like popular knowledge almost. And yeah. the, the gap is just huge. And then a lot of people that I met, at least in academia were like, they didn't even really care about actually yeah. educating the population. And it was kind of, it was honestly kind of frustrating to me. And sure. I was yeah, like, yeah, it's like is, even yeah. in the medical field, it seems like they're behind on things. And like if I were to bring up, hey, doctor, I think I might have this leaky gut syndrome, they're going to act like, oh, this girl's been on WebMD too long. Leaky <laughs> gut's not something we treat. Like, do you yeah. find do you find that at all? Like, do doctors take leaky gut syndrome seriously? Or I would say, how often does someone have, do you think there's a lot of people that have leaky gut that like aren't treated for it at all? I think definitely. I mean, there is like a delay in what we find in research and then getting it to being able to, for doctors to be able to treat humans with that disease, just because a lot of times, um, which is the prime example with leaky gut, like it's we're just now realizing and we don't even understand the gravity of it, how much your gut influences the rest of your organism or the rest of the body. And so like, for example, some bacteria in the gut, say a bacteria feeds on sugar in the gut. And so we're really just starting to discover that the gut bacteria in someone can interact with their brain. And for example, that bacteria, if they like eating sugar, then it, we found, not me specifically, but the field has found that there's crosstalk between the gut and the brain to get the person to eat things that are more sugary, which is crazy to me. And then I find it fascinating yeah. that like your yeah, gut is talking why. to your brain. Yeah. And so that's like, it's, it's, we need to discover, or we need to find out really more about a disease. And then eventually it gets to where um, MDs or clinicians can treat it, but there is definitely a gap um, for a length of time where we're still discovering it because we don't want to have the clinicians treat someone with it if we don't actually understand wholly what's going on um, because the humans aren't the experimental, you know, um, we don't want to experiment on humans before we figure out what's actually going on. Um, but I do say that I would think that a lot of people probably have leaky gut or it's slightly that doesn't manifest into like super serious problems. And so I would say that a large, 
a lot more people have it than we realize. Um, they just haven't started to develop symptoms that we recognize associated with leaky gut right now. And um, how does, so I've, so I've heard that this before, like the sugar example. And I, and I think that's becoming like, I don't know, my mom's told me about that and she's, you know, she's not a scientist, but like, how does it actually, what's the mechanism that that happens? So I'm, we might not be able to fully get it, but like, if you sure, can give us an idea. Sure. So it's the cellular, like on a cellular level, it's un, like mind blowing how much different cells in different areas of the body, different cells within the same organ, um, how they are able to talk. So there it's thought to be that they can use different molecules. They can send molecules from cell type to cell type, or they can send, um, use the nervous system and send signals to different cells and different neurons in the body. It's like, I cannot understate, it can't be understated how complex it is. And we're still honestly figuring it out. And so I would say it, there's no one like, quick answer of how the gut can talk to the brain, but it's utilizing these different cell-to-cell communication tactics, um, which is kind of what one of my lab studies is how um, the nervous system talks to the intestine and how, like, for example, how your brain can tell you when you're hungry, um, which is a more basic example, but then we've also got hormones and chemicals involved. Um, so it's just a crazy complex, you know, system going on. And the more I'm, I study it and the more I get in depth with it, the more I'm like in awe that we can even live, you know, like there's so many different things going on and we as scientists don't even understand all of it. And we can't even, we find new things every day that are like mind blowing. And so it, I think with the, amount of like research, um, like developments of different things where we can test things in the body. Um, I think in the next like 20 to 30 years, we're going to find some extremely cool things. Um, but I, back to the, um, break between academia and the general population, I think that it's definitely, it's easy to get in, you know, as an scientist in academia, it's easy to get lost in this cool science that we're doing and we kind of it's easy to forget that if you know if people can't understand what you're doing in the papers that you write then you're really missing out on a whole population that could benefit from your research if we're not also making efforts to make it more you know consumable from a general population standpoint if that makes sense yeah well said Yeah, um, I started diving into some of the science or just reading articles about um, depression being linked to like IBS and Crohn's. And I actually had a friend, her boyfriend was diagnosed with Crohn's and they put him on the keto diet, which to me was like, it's kind of weird because a lot of people are like, like, for example, Rachel had IBS and she told us she was actually, the meat was triggering her. Um, but for someone like him who had the, has Crohn's, I bet they did that like because of what you just said, the sugar, um, it feeding on the sugar. And it's, I mean, I'm not a clinician, so I can't like give 
medical advice to patients, obviously, but it's, I think it's definitely because it's so complex, it becomes more of a patient to patient basis. And like Crohn's and IBS, the way that they're caused and how they develop could be completely different in one patient with IBS compared to another patient with IBS. And so I think moving into the more tailored approach, um, which is where I hope medicine ends up moving towards in the next few years is more um, like being able to determine what's best for this person um, compared to another person based off of a, or instead of doing like an umbrella approach, like if you have IBS, I'm going to give you this medicine and we'll try that first. But I think identifying what the triggers of these two uh, diseases is really going to be an important part of treatment moving forward, I would say. I love that your research is on the gut because when I started finding out some of these, you know, we don't really know for sure, but we think like the gut is way more connected to the brain than we ever thought. I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I've been lied to. I felt like I'd been lied to. Like our gut is so like, it might be like just as important as the brain. And when I started thinking about it, it was like, that's why we get gut feelings like in scary situations, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, and we never think of our gut as this, like, we think of like our heart and our brain as like these sacred thing, but we don't think Mm -hmm. of our, like our gut is like maybe doing some of the thinking for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of crazy. It's, it is crazy. I find it fascinating. Like your, your heart has to pump for you to stay alive and your brain obviously has to be good for you to stay alive. But the, you know, the quality of that life and the different things that your body's feeling on a day-to-day basis, I think is largely like we can't, we don't even understand how much the gut is incorporated in that. Um, And so that's, it's really become, there's a lot more research going on regarding the gut and its influence on the body now compared to even 10 years ago. Um, So I think it's definitely moving in the right direction. Um, but I, you mentioned something that I wanted to point out that you felt lied to, like, this is, uh, pretty common. I would say not to get political, but I know that a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of people that like recommendations from the CDC with the pandemic, you know, they feel that they're being misled, you know, and because the recommendations are changing and that's where I would like to point out that like, that's kind of how hypotheses work, you know, like since it was such a new thing, um, they formed hypotheses and they tested them. And then each experiment that we do as scientists is designed to increase our knowledge and get us closer to understanding uh, what's actually going on in the body. And so that's, um, I would say, as research develops, you know, it's not, I want to point out that it's not the scientists trying to like misinform people, you know, it's just we, the more we, test, the more we figure out. And then as a scientist, we adjust our hypotheses and the model that of what we think is going on based off of the additional knowledge that we just got from our data, you know? Um, so luckily I think it's definitely, like I said, 10 years ago, probably it, we definitely didn't know how much the gut is involved with the brain. Um, but now it's, we've, we're realizing that we don't know how much we don't know, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. which it's really, really fascinating. There's been like, um, I know I've read studies with children with autism with like fecal transplants um, and that has improved their symptoms. 
um, and depression and anxiety and even like ADHD, for example, there's um, specific diets that are um, people have found to help them with their symptoms with all of these things. Um, and I think there's definitely like a physiological mechanism of why we just might not understand specifically what nutrients are helping, you know, um, but that's where the tailored, you know, treatment also comes in, like something that helps my ADHD symptoms might be different than a food that helps someone else. Um, so that's where diet also comes into play quite a bit, I would say. Have you done anything because you do gut research? Does that mean you've added anything into your diet, like maybe a probiotic or something that you're super um, strict on now that you weren't necessarily before? Yeah, so I definitely am a lot more aware of keeping my gut healthy, I would say, um, because my labs do study of what happens when the gut breaks down, you know, we can see, which I'm 26, you know, my, our guts might not be in a bad way now, but we also want to be able to preserve the function of the gut as we age. Um, and so I'm definitely, I take a probiotic. Um, I think that more importantly, if I'm ever on antibiotics or anything, I make a point to take probiotics or uh, prebiotics even afterwards because antibiotics are um, pretty mess up your gut bacteria and your microbiome quite a bit. Um, and so I think resetting that is by the use of these probiotics are, is a good thing that I definitely practice. Um, um, so, you know, I, I see a lot of people, um, in, you know, promoting one diet or one's a supplement or another and not, not probiotics, but like, you know, I know sure. a lot of guys are bullshitting, but is there, are there like, are there, um, recommendations that, that are like pretty universal for, for diet, let's say, or like, cause, cause I know this, this guy and he promote, he, he claims like that his diet plan promotes gut health. And it's like, I've always wondered, like, how can he actually say that? You know what I mean? So this is kind of a, not a controversial, it's funny that you say this because I, I have a background in exercise physiology. And so that involved a lot of nutrition, um, learning about nutrition. And so I would say you kind of have to go on a case by case basis. You know, I'm not personally a fan of any fad diet. I don't think that the claims that certain people promoting them can be backed up by the science of it, you know, now saying more of a, this is a gut healthy diet. It depends on if this person has, you know, looked into scientific articles and um, read the research. And I don't want to discount this person, you know, if, if a person promoting a diet is, has done a lot of research, reading up on articles in peer reviewed journals specifically, um, that go through like a vetting process to make sure that their science checks out before the article is published, um, then they might be incorporating some of those like research um, results into their diet recommendations. But in, in regards to like keto or Adkins or, you know, I'm less likely to uh, be comfortable suggesting someone go on those. Um, I would say the more universal thing that I've 
um, I believe in more is more like from the non, uh, not as processed aspect. Um, so I like everything in moderation. I try to eat things more from the ground, I call it. Um, so, you know, which falls into the less processed aspect of it. Um, I think when we process food, we lose a lot of the nutritional value. And so I personally, just from a health standpoint, I'm more of the universal recommendation from me would be to just do from the ground, you know, don't overcook things. Don't, you know, keep a reasonable level of fats and uh, cholesterol and things like that. I don't, I don't claim to follow any uh, like fad diets. So like one of the claims, and I'm sorry if I'm going like too off topic here, this will be the last <laughs> no, thing I'll no, ask, but the, one of the, like, so in this guy's diet, um, and it's like he he co-authored it with a guy who has his PhD in nutrition. So I've always thought like, oh, this sounds kind of legit. But I'm wondering like this specific thing, like he talks about um, like the vegetables and fruits he includes in the plan are low FODMAP. Do you, are you familiar with that? I wasn't. It's like I... low gas, basically. Like there's like an index where you can like broccoli is like very high gas because it like builds gas in your stomach or something. Oh, yeah. I've heard broccoli is better for you if you cook it. I don't know. But have you ever, is that like, it, I don't know. So like, I, use, like the whole foods are better for your gut biome than like processed foods. It sounds like that's like a pretty universal thing, but any, yeah, anything other than that, is that kind of like at some point it's kind of like, we don't really know yet. So if it's published by someone that, you know, it seems it like, I would always say if they have references in their book, um, then that's a good sign that they've kind of, peruse the available research. Um, and so I haven't personally looked into that, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's some research out of vegetables or fruits that are more, main, keep your gut at more of a homeostatic level. So keep your gut healthy. Um, I haven't, I would have to look into the research before making yeah. suggestions, obviously. Um, but I, I would say, anything with a book with written by a PhD, you know, with references. Um, and if they actually describe why this is better, then I think that's also a good sign. Um, instead of just telling you this is what you should do, you know, yeah. if he describes like the physiological reason why this is better then I, I would definitely, um, as long as it's not something too drastic, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount trying it, you know? Yeah. And um, so is there like, I just don't understand the gut biome that well, obviously, but like, is there, um, but so it's, it seems like to me, like from the way I understand it, like there's a certain level of like, okay, your gut biome is, uh, you know, the makeup of it is determined by like your consistent food habits. And so somebody that maybe eats like a highly, uh, you know, like a standard American diet, it's like very high in fat, very high in carbs, very processed. Like you said, like, I feel like maybe is, is it the case where their gut biome is now so markedly different than somebody like one of us who eats more whole foods that like they can digest that type of food more easily and assimilate it more easily. Whereas like, sometimes if I have like a, a day where I eat a bunch of shitty food, yeah. I like feel like, Oh my, like, I feel like dead. Yeah. I feel like hungover. Is that part of it? Is like the gut biome that's I would say that that's definitely part of it. Um, like, yeah, I was going to use the example of if you 
you know, if you don't eat McDonald's for months and then you eat a McDonald's meal, you know, your stomach is all sorts of upset. And I think that's definitely something that could be, it's probably due to the bacteria being able to handle that type of food, you know, so maybe, and so the gut microbiome from person to person is going to be wildly different based off of, like you said, their consistent diet choices. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something that if you eat more of an American diet, you know, you're probably more able to process that American diet um, rather that, than yeah. throwing, you know, throwing a curveball at your gut bacteria and saying, hey, digest this um, when you're not used to digesting it. Yeah. Um, you probably don't have the populations of bacteria that are good at digesting that high fat diet, that those high fat foods. You probably don't have as many of those since you don't eat as many high fat foods, you know. Yeah. Um, so the, the, it's super complex, obviously, but like the populations of different types of bacteria and the bacteria that do certain things are definitely going to make a difference on the symptoms that you feel in your body and the symptoms that manifest from these diet choices that you're making, I would say. Didn't you um, used to work in a lab that studied Alzheimer's? Yes. So I um, we studied it more on a, a mouse level. Um, so we studied the, the breakdown of the blood brain barrier, um, which I was kind of a little bit separate from that lab. Um, but we definitely studied like the neuronal breakdown um, from high fat diet. It was diet based. You're right. Um, so we had high fat diet and then low fat diet. And we also had diets that were sourced from lard versus fish oil. So fish oil is considered more of the healthy fat. Um, so that was actually my master's thesis project um, was looking at the changes in diet um, in mice and how that affected. I looked at uh, the development of fatty liver disease, but we also looked at the brain and how the brain blood brain barrier was affected based off of those diets. And there definitely seems to be more um, just from a general sense, we found that um, diets that even though they were high fat, the ones that were sourced from fish oil, they didn't gain weight like high fat mice. Um, and which is pretty interesting when we had a high fat lard mice, high fat uh, fish oil mice and the high fat fish oil mice looked like they were on a low fat diet for the last 30 weeks. Um, so weight wise, there was a big difference. And then also we found that um, eating healthier fats made for a much healthier liver. You know, your metabolism is better off, is more efficient than the high fat, lard based diets, which I would consider more of like the American diet. Um, definitely kind of wreaked havoc on a lot of organ systems um, in the mice that we studied. Yeah. So when you say high, if I wanted to make my diet high fat fish oil, I just need to be eating more fish. Yeah, so you would be, which you can supplement fish oil um, or you can eat, just eat more fish. Yeah, so fish versus like um, red meat or um, kind of the unhealthier meat. Um, there's definitely some, uh, the actual, the oils that are sourced from fish seem to be, which this isn't, my master's thesis wasn't the only one thing, ones that found that. Um, it seems to have a very broad um, benefit throughout your body. So not just on your liver and your blood brain barrier. Um, we found that like their cholesterol levels were lower, 
even though they were eating the same amount of fat. So it seems to be more important the type of fat rather than the amount of fat that you're eating. Is it is it the omega three to omega six ratio that makes it yeah. different the fish versus the lard? Yeah. Um, question, did you, have you seen anything about, um, aspartame, um, giving people Alzheimer's or being linked to leaky gut or like bad gut? So I'd have to do a quick search on, for articles. Um, I can personally tell you that I stopped drinking things with aspartame in it a few years ago, just because it seems suspicious, you know, like there's been enough data that has said that it's, it's harmful for me to not, not drink it, but I also don't drink pop and I never have. So I don't have that, you know, craving for pop that I don't want to, I want to drink diet versus regular, you know, because I do think that sugar is a, is a big thing as well, which I personally love sweets. And so I definitely still eat sugar, but yeah, fun um, fact, Megan is a really great cake decorator as well. Nice. Oh, this, this brings, brings up a good question. So like you said, like, oh, I could do a quick search on it. Is there like, I know when I was in school, like I had access to like a database for research articles. Sure. Like, is there something that like just the average person, like where yeah. can the average yeah, person? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I would say the, one of the main ones that even we use, we have access to a lot of different databases through the university, but we use Google Scholar. That's my go-to for anything. Like if you, just search, um, for example, you could search leaky gut and aspartame, and you, there's probably some articles that have been published, which that doesn't mean that you're going to read the titles and take that as gold, but it's definitely, it's never a bad thing to inform yourself more of what's out there, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah cause I think Sam had an issue with one of those studies um, oh, they sure. were giving them way more aspartame than like a human oh. would ever take it. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And that's where being able to like, kind of like, re I say reading isn't a bad thing. If you maintain your ability to like complexly think about it, you know, like if you read right. it and you realize that, oh, this is 10 times more aspartame than I would typically have a human would have, then obviously the results aren't going to be as applicable to what we would see from a human drinking diet pop, you know? And yeah. so that's definitely, I say, read as much as you can, but also don't believe it outright. Like you can still critique things. And the more you read, the more you're going to get an idea of what's a, a properly designed project, you know, um, and so the more you, you read, the more you're going to be able to detect, hey, that's a little off. Like, why are they doing this versus this? You know, and I think it's good to when you read that much, you start to ask questions like, what if I add this into the equation or, you know, and I definitely think that that's not a bad thing. That's my whole job is asking questions. So but Google Scholar is um, reputable. You it's also um, there are some journals that are not peer reviewed, which I would say um, steer clear of those um, more often than reading peer reviewed articles. And by peer reviewed, I, I mean that like if I were to submit my project in a manuscript form um, to a scientific journal, it would go through like the editor would read it and make sure everything checks out. And then they would send it out to, if they decide they want to publish it in their journal, they would send it out to different 
reviewers, they're called. And so that would be like subject matter experts. And so those experts are critiquing your design, your results, how you're discussing them, if you're interpreting these results as you should, you know, and so you really get that expert um, viewpoint. And then a lot of times the reviewers will send the paper back to you and say, hey, if you do this experiment and this experiment and this experiment, you know, you can really make stronger claims from this. And so they give you advice on what to do to make the paper better. And so that all comes with a peer review journal, whereas that doesn't come with it. You know, there's just more of a criteria of checkpoints that you have to go through to make sure that your research is sound and makes sense. Um, and so Google Scholar is a good way to make sure that you're looking at those peer reviewed articles um, that have been vetted like that. Yeah. Thanks. That's a good tip. I, I, I like just recently learned about Google Scholar and um, yeah. Oh, really? I use that for my, um, for some of my journalism papers, but it's been a long time since I got on there. Yeah. yeah. And free. there's, it's, it is free and I find it, I'm a huge nerd obviously, but I find it fascinating. You can search like any keywords and you're going to find articles yeah. in it and you can read about things that you didn't know were connected at all. Um, and it has more things than just um, medical articles as well. Um, so I would definitely, even if you just go play with it for a while, like entering in your favorite uh, topics, you'll probably learn something, um, which is something I strive to do quite a bit. Like keep learning. Like I don't want to get, um, you know, bored with my current knowledge. You know, I don't want to get stagnant. So I definitely would suggest that. Lifelong learner. A lifelong student. <laughs> um, what is a normal day for you as a scientist? Do you still play with rats at all? or? <laughs> so I never played with rats. I did. Um, playing isn't necessarily the word. So um, I work with cells and I also work with mice and the microscopic worms that I was talking about earlier. Um, so I'm lucky as a graduate student to not have to teach to fund me. So at some universities, people have to teach undergrad um, classes in order to get their salary paid. Um, Is that because you got a Michigan, scholarship? So at, it depends on the university. So at the University of Michigan, we're technically through the medical school. And so we're lucky to be able to, I had to teach one semester um, just to get the experience, but then I don't have to teach the rest of the time. So I have a, a, we've got a lot of training grants they're called. And so they're um, grants that have been funded with the priority of training doctoral students. So I'm on, I've received a fellowship through one of these training grants. And so um, that like pays my salary, um, but back to day to day, sorry, I got distracted. Um, so I'm, able to make my own schedule. Um, it depends from lab to lab how much flexibility you have with that. Um, my mentor is a very relaxed, um, very reasonable guy. He um, has a wife and three kids at home. So he really understands the work-life balance aspect of it, which is really important and what I was looking for in a mentor. You know, some scientists view 
will be expected to work 12 hours a day, six days a week. And I didn't want that, obviously. Um, that would, so I think um, that's important when looking for a lab. Um, so I go in and depending on what experiments I've got going, um, that completely defines my day. So my days are different um, all the time. So for example, I've got worm experiments um, where I've got these different chemicals that I'm introducing to the worms. And I've got this cool experiment where if the worm's gut is compromised, so if the their intestine is leaky, then the there's this dye that should stay in the intestine, but when the intestine is leaky, it spreads throughout the body and the worm becomes blue. So it's very easy to determine, um, and I'm talking little tiny worms, um, not earthworms. <laughs> I thought they were earthworms when I first started in the lab. But, so I've got those experiments going on. Um, so adding different chemicals to see what hurts the intestine and what protects the intestine. Um, we also do a lot of like genetic manipulation. And so if we shut off a gene in a worm and we treat it with an environmental stress that humans would experience, um, does that, is that worm more worse off without that gene? And so if that's the case, then that gene would, we could say that gene plays a role in protecting the intestine. Um, so I've got those experiments going on. And then I also work with mice. Um, and so I, the mice are, you do a lot less experiments with mice because we're really, um, it's a big point in biomedical research to use the least amount of animals possible. Um, so as we're not taking advantage of this model organism, you know, so um, for those, I've got mice that are just growing right now. Um, and then I will eventually put them on different diets or give them different um, stressors. And then I'll be able to see, take their organs and um, see what's going on. And we can test thousands of things with from one mouse. Um, so it's also pretty important that you test as many things possible using um, the mice that you have. And so um, I'll do that sometimes. I Next week I'm making baby intestines from mice, which is pretty cool. Um, so I'm sorry, I might be getting too nerdy, but um, we can take a mouse and take part of its intestine. And then there's a way that we figured out how to um, have the intestine, intestinal cells grow in culture. So we can do experiments on them without needing more mice. Um, and so that's, uh, it's a lot of like bench work. Like you see what you picture scientists with their lab coat and they're pipetting things from one place to the other. Um, and so it's a lot of that and like molecular science, um, if that makes sense. And so, but it's different every day. There's also some writing. Um, I have to give certain presentations quite a bit. We've got like lab meetings where we all meet everyone in the lab to discuss our data and what it means. And so it's really, um, which is good for me. I, I don't get bored with my day-to-day -day, um, schedule. So it, it looks uh, pretty different every day. I can totally see you doing that because I remember like having <laughs> science classes with you. And when we would have the lab session, oh I, um, I would like not even be done reading the assignment and you would have already finished it and you were my partner. So then I would just oh, like no. write everything I'm so down. Sorry. 
<laughs> and that was like, so like whenever we had a lab day, it was like, well, Megan's going to do it. And it like, you, it's like, you weren't the kind of person that was like, I hate doing all the work. Like you were the like kind of person that's like, I want to be doing all the yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That to uh, doesn't surprise me. Sam had to go use the restroom. Um, but I wanted to ask you on that note, what made you interested in science and why you chose it as your occupation? So um, I would say that the number one thing that made me chose this, choose this career field is the learning potential. So I with because I have ADHD, I get bored pretty easily and I didn't want to, you know, establish a career and then get bored with it. And I also think it's really important to keep learning. Um, and with science in this field, you can learn and research every day for 300 years and you're still going to learn more the next day, you know? And so that was the main reason the learning potential being endless is why I chose the science field. Um, and then also I'm just pretty nerdy. And so I find all of it really fascinating. Um, and so it's, I get, obviously there's ups and downs and there's tough times, you know, especially in a doctoral program. Um, but I feel like I'm being pushed on a regular basis to further my skills and to become a better scientist. And so that's something that's really um, confirmed that I made the right career choice, you know, is yeah, that I'm able awesome. to keep learning. Yeah. You're a total girl boss. You've accomplished oh, so much. Thank you. So have you. <laughs> um, you grew up in a small town and you've lived in St. Louis it, area and now Michigan and I'm not super like familiar with how big of a town you live in in Michigan I'm guessing it's a lot bigger than Carthage which area has been your self is like 10 times or 20 times bigger probably which area has been your favorite to live and why oh good question so yes we I we grew up in uh very, very, I, when I describe where I grew up to people around here, I just say it's in the middle of a cornfield because that's basically what it was, you know? Um, and so then I moved down by St. Louis and that was, so to reference Carthage where we grew up has 2,800 people, right? And so the town I moved to down by St. Louis had 25,000 and then Ann Arbor, which is where I'm at now has 125,000. So I'm like steadily going up quite a bit. This is definitely the largest uh, city that I've lived in. Um, and it's not even like I talked to my friends that came from California and they're like, this isn't even a large city. And I'm like, oh my, it is. <laughs> um, so there's there was benefits to everything, all each of those towns. You know, when I go back home, it's very, I just visited back home for the holidays. Um, and it's very family oriented you know everyone sees everyone all the time and it's there's benefits to that um the town that I lived in by St. Louis you know I had a really great experience with our college with my college that I went to that it wasn't too big I didn't feel overwhelmed um, but it was big enough to give me the opportunities that I would need to do to move forward with the career that I wanted um, and so there was also cool things to do, you know, 20, St. Louis is 20 miles away. So we could always go into St. Louis and do all of the fun things there. I would say 
if I could remove the part of being so far away from my family and friends, I would say Ann Arbor is my favorite simply because there's so much to do. Like there's cool breweries and wineries to go check out. There's national parks. Like you hear bad things about Michigan winters, you know, um, but like April to October, it's fantastic. It's like 85 degrees and sunny. Um, and so the winter is worth it. Um, the snowy winters. So I would say that there's a lot of things to do like outside, like there's floating in the summer, you float down the river. Um, like there's different hiking things and a lot of different lakes that you can go walk around. And so I would say, um, based off of the culture, Ann Arbor is definitely my favorite. And there's, it's also very diverse. And so that's something that I've since moving, like I'm the only one in my family that's moved away so far. And so that's been a huge kind of, you know, back home, we don't have a lot of diversity at all. You know, we don't, we see the same type of people that look the same way. Um, and when I move here, I've been able to experience all of the other, you know, worldviews people and that have, yeah, people that have had completely different lives than me. And I learned so much just being able to interact with them. Um, and so that's something that I really have enjoyed moving to a bigger city, you know, um, and so, yeah, but it is very hard to be so far away from my family and friends. Um, I'm about eight hours away from my family now, and I'm pretty close with my family. And then obviously with the pandemic, it's made things more challenging. Um, so if I was a little closer to them, it'd be ideal. But I think that it's definitely moving to Ann Arbor has given me all the opportunities that I more than I know what to do with. And so I would say that that one's my favorite. Yeah. And sometimes I find like, I really miss my family and I wish I could be closer, but at the same time, um, you only have so much time in a day and it like minimizes, this is like, it sounds like really selfish, yeah. but it no, minimizes no. my distractions because like, if so, I were back home, I would just like, oh my gosh, spend every not- Saturday night hanging out with my fam. Yeah. Whereas like now I can be like working on my podcast or something like, yeah. And I'm, I'm a very like emotional person. Like I feel emotions very strongly. And so I kind of have to, I've learned to kind of shut that emotional brain off when I need to focus on labs and focus on things here. Um, Like I can't miss my family, you know, tremendously and have that like emotional hurt and distraction and also be able to thrive here. And so um, I've, started to practice more lately, turning that emotional brain off and, um, kind of, I, it doesn't mean that I don't miss my family, obviously. Um, but it's, it's not mentally healthy for it to be at the front of my mind at all times, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what I've tried to do lately. (laughs) It's not easy though. It takes a lot of mental energy to, you know, make part of your brain quiet. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it pops back up and I get homesick, you know, but um, thankfully I was able to have a good visit just a couple weeks ago and catch up with everyone. And thankfully so. we have things like this zoom. Yeah, no kidding. Time. They're not the best, but they're better than nothing. Absolutely. For sure. Um, you shared with me privately and you just shared a little bit on the zoom that you have ADD or maybe you call it ADHD. I don't know. What do you call it? Um, um I have ADHD, ADHD, but they're similar mm-hmm. and that you actually want to do more research to the connection with the gut. Um, and you've told me and 
ADHD and to see if there's like a correlation there. And then you also have told, you mentioned your boss has been a really great mentor and he's flexible. And you mentioned with me privately, he works really well with your ADHD and knowing the kind of environment and what you need to be better, um, be your best mentally, be your best productivity wise. What um, tips would you give other workplace places to make an environment for someone with ADHD? Because I find that a lot of people have ADHD, whether they know it or not. They, yeah. I watched this guy named Dr. Amen and he takes like brain scans and he says there's all these different types and different ways they can manifest someone that has it one way could manifest completely, especially girls are underdiagnosed because we manifest sure. completely differently. Mm -hmm. um, so how, what would be your tips for other workplaces and how your mentor has really handled it well? Sure. Um, so this is a way, you know, this is pretty close to my heart. It's, it's not really talked about in academia very much, um, anything with ADHD um, and the struggles of anything, anyone with like a cognitive disability would go through. Um, there's not a ton of students at this level with it. Um, and so I would say that the biggest tip that I found to be the most productive is starting to talk about it. Um, and so I would say in my master's degree and my undergrad, and I had great mentors there, but I, I tried to hide it, um, that I was struggling with all of these things. And I just thought if I, you know, if I work 12 hours a day, instead of my peers having to work eight hours a day, I can get the same amount done. And so it, no one will notice, you know, and I'll just put in the extra work because I have to, because it takes me long. Personally, it takes me longer to do things, um, more some specific things more than others, like writing, I take forever to write. And um, yeah, so I found labs, that- I feel like when I used to be with you <laughs> in school, you were just like, you would be the first one done. <laughs> so it was definitely not diagnosed at that point. Um, but it's, yeah, there's definitely certain things that I have no trouble focusing on. Like if I'm, you know, part of ADHD is kind of hyper-focusing. And so if I find something super fascinating and it's new, I'm excited about it. I have no problem um, getting super into it and focusing. It's when I'm not excited about things that it's like almost feels painful to have to do. Like I'm not good or I don't enjoy writing like scientific writing. And it's like, it's just a mental battle of getting myself to, you know, start to do those things. And so in my master's degree, like I said, I tried to hide these things and I wasn't like open with my boss or my peers that I had this. Um, and I was still trying to navigate and figure out what ADHD meant for me, you know, and what symptoms that I'd had for years that I didn't realize were part of this disease. Um, and or this disorder more so. Um, and so I, found that that was a lot more mentally draining. And so when I moved here, I started to make a point to talk about it more. And that's been made all the difference. Like my mentor wouldn't have any idea that I'm struggling with these things if I had never told him that I struggled with ADHD, you know? And so he's now, since I've been able, since he's been encouraging um, with helping me figure out like a day-to-day schedule and environment that works the best for me. Um, it's really made all the difference 
um, like I've seen students that are in doctoral programs and they, they're meant for whatever reason, their mentors are not, um, they don't jive well with the student um, and the student with ADHD is, ends up failing um, and ends up being, having to stop their program because it's just too difficult um, or they're not reaching the criteria and the checkpoints, you know, that the neurotypical students are reaching. And so I am luckily, lucky in that my interactions with my mentor have helped me learn more about my symptoms and about what works for me. I would say at the very beginning, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, I have certain things that I can do that kind of trick my brain into focusing. Like for example, if I put on these noise canceling headphones, it kind of, I've tried to make a routine when I'm focusing. So then when I do those things, even if I'm a little more distracted that day, it kind of tricks my brain into thinking, oh, it's time to focus. Like I put these headphones on, I used to chew gum when I was focusing. And so then if I put the headphones on and chewed the gum, then it would kind of help me get into that focus state. Um, but it's definitely been uh, like trial and error and error and error. Um, thankfully, I have a lot of um, great coworkers that have helped me identify some of like the symptoms of ADHD. And so then I can look into um, online other people that have struggled with that and how they've overcome it. So reading a lot about it um, has also helped. Um, but it's more about, it's made me a lot more like in tune with my emotions and with my, what's going on in my brain. Like before I would feel this way and I didn't understand why I felt that way. And I didn't understand why my feelings about this subject were so different than what my peers were feeling about my, this subject, you know? And so having this understanding of, oh, this is, there's like a physical reason why I'm feeling this way and why it's so different than my peers and that's okay. And that's, it really, when I started talking about it, it removed a lot of the guilt, um, which shouldn't be associated with it, obviously, uh, because it's nothing that we can do to, like, I can't, it's not my fault I have ADHD, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I stopped being kind of embarrassed about it and I stopped trying to hide my symptoms. And so now I've learned to kind of make them a strength and talk about them. So I talk about them freely now. I've gotten comfortable to where um, I can talk about them. And my hope is that if someone is struggling with the same things and you know they haven't realized that this is, there's a physiological reason that you're thinking this way and that you're feeling differently than your peers, um, that they can, this can help me by me talking about it and being, speaking about it so freely that that can help them figure out what works for them. Yeah, I like that. That's so important. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of support for depression, anxiety and things online. And so support for, I think, um, ADD or ADHD on like, I haven't heard so much about that one being like Mm -hmm. support for it. So it is a mental, not mental illness, but a mental disorder, right? Sure. So yep. it should be treated just, it should have just as much support um, for people. And I found that like, because I mean, ADHD and ADD, it is kind of like 
a superpower as well. Like you said, like yeah. you can hyper focus on things. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people that are like super creative, um, yeah. have it. And a lot of CEOs have it that are like super sure. very successful. Um, mm-hmm. like I, I, it's like 75% of like really successful CEOs have ADHD or something like crazy. Yeah. So, um, I think that if there's less shame of it and more of like, okay, this has benefits, but it's also has things that makes you struggle daily. Um, Mm -hmm. so how can we, for me, it was like having my own, like my job. Now I have my own office versus the other place. I was like right next to three people. And my boss was constantly chewing nicotine and looking over my (laughs) ear and breathing on me. Um, and so that was really hard for me to focus, obviously when he's breathing on me, (laughs) Um, um, but now that I have my own office, it's, and I can put in headphones, it's so much easier for me to focus. So simply something that simple, like an environment change. Um, and I think companies are going to see that with working from home and like productivity there. So, oh yeah, I had that definitely threw a wrench into, like, I felt like I was just getting used to what worked for me in lab and then the pandemic hit and I had to start working from home. And so that forced me to figure out ways to get it to work in my home environment too, you know, but I definitely think that until I, I wasn't able to focus on the qualities or the aspects of ADHD that I could use to my benefit and that I could use to make me a better scientist and a better person. I wasn't able to focus on those, on it, like exploiting those until I had removed the shame part of it. And so uh, I would definitely say that talking about it in general, you know, takes the shame out of it. And, you know, the more people that I told, I found it pretty empowering, you know, um, and getting not, help for it first as a staff. Yeah, I've never been diagnosed, sure. but I'm, I'm sure I probably have something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I went, I actually went through, um, a neuropsychological testing, um, in order to be, get, um, like treated for it here in Michigan once I moved. And that was actually incredibly interesting. Like it was like a four hour test. I had to do all sorts of different things. And a psychologist um, determined, basically mapped out my brain. I feel like, like she told me that I was able to learn that I learned the best through hearing, not through reading. Like I thought I had a partially like photographic memory. And it turns out that I retain more when I hear things. Um, I found that I was on the 99th percentile of inattentiveness and hyperactivity. So then it like, it was like, okay, this is, this is why I've been having all of these problems. Like it kind of validated, it made me confident that the things that I was struggling with weren't just in my head, you know, Um, like this is a psychologist that just diagnosed you with this and said that you're like, your brain is different than other people's. And so it, it, I got a lot of like liberation from that, I would say as well. Um, just recognizing that it's not just you, you know, is also pretty empowering. Um, like I overthink everything. And so when I have a feeling or a thought, I'm like, is this me being like me overreacting or is this a, like normal thought to have, you know? Um, and so that was really liberating in that sense to learn that the things that I was thinking are because of this disorder, this illness and not just my brain, you know? 
Um, with new DNA technology available, like to the public, like 23andMe, how do you see that changing the future of how we prepare for diseases we are predisposed to genetically? Okay, back to the science. <laughs> A loaded question. <laughs> um, I think that those things, so I, I have the school of thought that more knowledge is never a bad thing. And so um, I think that learning more about the genetic predispositions that you have, it can definitely um, improve the, potentially even improve the outlook of those diseases, you know? So for example, if I know that I'm more predisposed to having hypertension, then I might start to adapt a diet that is lower in salt. Um, whereas if I didn't know that I was predisposed for that, then I might just be eating a normal diet, you know, and not paying attention to the salt. Um, and so it could, the hypertension would develop. Whereas if I know about it beforehand and I, a lot of these predispositions, we know generally what causes them. And so I think it's, it's not, I think it's a really good thing actually. Um, it can help you kind of give you a better picture of what's going on in your body and what potentially could develop in the future. Um, and so you can make changes to prevent those things from actually developing. That, that uh, have you used 23andMe? I haven't. I want to. Um, partially because I just find it cool. Um, I also considered doing it with my cat. Um, there's, there's pet ones now. I don't know if you've done it with your dogs. Yeah, <laughs> I've tested my dog's DNA. Is it cool? <laughs> I, have, I haven't done mine, but I've done my dog's. Same. Um, I'm like, yeah, I'll I just spend wanted money to... on the pets, but not. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't do the health one, but I just, mm -hmm. I spent money on the, like, to find out what she is, like yeah. the percentages and it came back like crazy different things. Like she's like 25% boxer, which oh I never would have guessed. Like, she yeah. has chow chow in her and like chihuahua and like, she does not. I, I never would have thought those things, but now like okay. that I look at the mix I'm like, oh, I can kind of see it now because she's got like the orange fur that Chow Chows have. Yeah. And um, she's got like this little face, but then this big like chest that a boxer would have. So it kind of mm -hmm. makes sense, yeah. I guess. And actually her personality probably too, you can have um, some indication. Like if you know if she's part Chow Chow and you know they have very distinct personality traits, you know, that you can... Uh, help identify those things um yeah but i think of <laughs> megan rescues cats can you tell us a little bit how you got into that sure um actually it's kind of a to be very transparent i you went through a break cats. yeah i went through a breakup a couple of years ago and i thought that i could either you know work through this heartache in a way that's destructive and is not positive for me as a person or I could um, work through this heartache in a way that's going to help other people or other things. And that's literally the thought that I had when I started it. <laughs> so you were like, so, okay, I'm single. Like, I'm going to become the could, crazy cat lady. <laughs> no, no. Like I could like uh, fall into like drinking more and doing destructive behaviors, or I could use my time and my energy on taking care of these little fluffs. And so I got, I started fostering um, and my first litter was four kittens. Um, and they had just been brought into the shelter and it's 
it is the it's extremely difficult because they're very like messy and very taxing emotionally but it's so rewarding um i have now fostered 33 uh kittens cats in the last year and a half and um two of them have been moms that have given birth in my apartment um but then it's also extremely cool because i get to see that process and i'm obviously like interested in health so that's really cool but then I get to see these newborn kittens grow until eight weeks old when they go back to the shelter to get fixed and microchipped and adopted out. But you get to see the whole process. Like none of my friends or colleagues have ever seen like a two week old kitten or a three week old kitten. Like it's an opportunity that I didn't, wouldn't have if I didn't foster. Um, and so it's really, really cool to see them grow and see their little personalities develop. And obviously they're super cute and fluffy. Um, so it's really, I've learned a lot about um, myself and about like caring for others. I'm the type of person that I feel like I'm my best person when I'm able to care for others. And so it satisfies that caring requirement for me. Um, and so now I currently, I have a foster cat that I was very, very feral. And so I'm teaching her how to be a house cat and domesticating her. And it's, it's, so rewarding. I can't even describe it. Like when you have a cat that's never been touched by humans six months ago, now she's walking up to me asking for pets. Um, it's just a really cool thing to watch. Um, so yeah, I that's highly amazing. recommend it to anyone. Um, yeah. I think I've always, you know, a lot of people, they like to get a puppy from the start versus adopting. Sure. And mm-hmm. I know that's frowned upon, obviously. Um, but they say like, oh, I want to like, you know, like teach it from young age. Like influence its per- personality. Yeah, yeah, which is a cool experience. But at the same time, I think um, adopting a pet, they're, they're not perfect, but they're, they're quirky. And I think they those are. little quirks make them extra special. Like Dylan is like the most sure. quirky dog ever. He's kind of like a a cat like he climbs up on your shoulder and he's like he constantly has to be like I don't know if that's a cat but he constantly has to be on you and then Layla has like a lot of quirks she's just you know she loves to be rubbed in the morning but not at night and so yeah (laughs) she doesn't want to be like around you at night but then in the morning she comes and like lays on her back and is like rub me (laughs) it's my yeah (laughs) so I have a cat named Nacho that's the same way. Like he doesn't want to cuddle in the evening. Don't even touch him. But he's always like near me in the same room. But then in the morning, he like wakes me up to cuddle. And I'm like, okay, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's really cool to be able to, which I got um, Nacho as a kitten, but then I foster failed one, um, which is when you fail to give it back. Um, <laughs> so that one is her, like, I learn new quirks about her all the time. And it's really cool to see like their personalities come out. Um, and it, that's what makes them like once one in a million pet. Like I'm never, I know that I'm never going to have a cat with the exact same quirks as Nacho. Um, and so it just teaches you to appreciate different aspects about them. And obviously with the pandemic, like I, they increase my quality of life tenfold you know having um, an animal around just in general Um, so speaking of we didn't want to get on this podcast and talk to science and not mention um, with the pandemic 
Um, is there anything that you think people should know? Um, any advice moving forward that you have seen given your background in diseases and anything you sure. want to PSA? So I think my PSA would be to try to remember, like, I can't speak for every scientist on earth, obviously, but I would, I'm without a doubt, very confident that the research that's going on is not, is not being done to like dupe anyone or to get someone to, you know, believe things that they shouldn't, you know? So I feel like with the changing like recommendations, a lot of people, like I mentioned earlier, feel like we don't know what's going on, which we don't, you know, in the general sense when the pandemic hit, we didn't know anything about this virus. Um, and so I guess my PSA is just that like the scientists are working hard to figure out what's going on and just to be open with the fact that we're still learning and we're going to get information about the coronavirus and about what it does to your body when you have it, what it does to your body after you recover. Those things are all going to be coming in as new information. And I think it's important for like the general population to remember that just because we know that now and we didn't know that in the beginning, like there's, there's doesn't not mean it was honest. to try to it's like, like we um, didn't hide that from you. you from the beginning. Exactly. Exactly. Like we're just learning more about it as, um, as more research is going on. And similar to that. And I think scientists have been open about that from the beginning. Like they've been, yeah. I mean, from the beginning, I remember here, like whenever I heard a scientist speak, they're like, this is just so you know, this is changing. Like I could yeah. say this now and you quote me and then it's going to look really bad at three weeks because this is all changing. Yeah. Which with the like political climate, I think separating, going back and remembering that the science is not the political aspect of it. I think keeping in mind that those are more separate than they've come to be now, you know, it seems to be very intertwined and just reminding people that the scientific recommendations are not like it's not to satisfy a political agenda. Like we, the reason why we, scientists spend so many hours and spend like I'll have 12 years of college to be able to research what I do um, at the end and we wouldn't go through that I guess if we weren't care like caring about the people you know like the broad goal is to help people um, and so I guess just reminding people which if they've never talked to a scientist they might not know that but um, like we do what we do to try to help and so um, keeping in mind that that's not based off of like a political agenda, you know? Um, and yeah, I guess that's my, that's my PSA. And it's also, I know a lot of people are concerned about like vaccines coming out um, recently, you know, and how quickly that vaccine was developed. Um, I've read many people that are very concerned about that. And I wanna make it clear that you wouldn't know this if you weren't in the field, but typically there's like grants that you apply for on all of these different diseases. And if you get funding for them, then you have the money to study this disease for a couple of years, right? And so essentially in like when the coronavirus started in America, 
basically all other research stopped. And so where before the pandemic, you would have to, it would be competitive to get a grant to study your disease just because there's so many people doing research. Whereas after it started, money was being like, it was very easy to get a grant to study, sorry. It was very easy to get a grant I to love study it. coronavirus because it was such like, and this is what we trained to do, you know? Um, and so there was essentially endless funding to study this because it was so important and affecting so many people. And so the rate at which I would remind people that the rate at which the vaccine was developed doesn't necessarily, like we can't compare that to the development of treatments for diseases when we were studying a million diseases, you know, um, like everything stopped and all the scientists started studying coronavirus. So it's, it's not as quick and understudied as some people probably feel it is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, the kind of vaccine that it is, it called, what's it called? RN something? MRNA. MRNA. <laughs> Clearly I'm not <laughs> yeah, you, a scientist. No, you have the letters. You're good. Um, uh, this is funny. I follow this like Botox guy that like does lip injections and nose jobs mm-hmm. in St. Louis. Um, <laughs> yeah. his name's Dr. Nyack, nose by Nyack. You've probably seen the billboards. Um, he actually did his research, um, studying MRNA type mm-hmm. stuff. And that was way before he was a doctor. So although it wasn't a vaccine yet, they have been studying this, right? Yeah. So MRNA is just um, like we use MRNA to be able to tell how much genes are turned on. Um, we MRNA is not a new thing by any means. Um, it's just never we, been used in a vaccine. It's like, now. exactly. Yeah. Um, and which honestly, I feel more personally feel more confident about this vaccine. Um, partially something that entices me about it is that they're isn't a lot of like fillers or anything like there's the mRNA if I understand correctly there's the mRNA and then there's like the lipids and the molecules needed for the body to accept that mRNA and get it into itself which um, a lot of like cells they recognize lipids and they let lipids inside of their cell whereas other structures they may need a a receptor or a transporter to bring them into the cell. So the things that it seems to be just the mRNA and then the things that are required to get into the cells. And there's no like any preservatives. That's why it has to be kept at such, um, you know, low temperatures is because there aren't preservatives in there. And that makes me more confident in a vaccine, which I'm pro-vax all the way, but it, anytime when we're having less preservatives and fillers, I think that's a good thing. And so I, um, just got my invitation to schedule my vaccine appointment, and uh, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I think it'll really make big strides in getting starting to get life back to normal, you know, back to not what it was completely, obviously. But I think it'll really help in a lot in opening up the economy a little more and making people feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck. Um, that's exciting. Um, thanks so much. Did you have any more questions? No. Did you have anything else you wanted to share before we get off here? No. All right. So. Well, this was awesome. You are just yeah, thank so, you so smart much. and fascinating. Thank you for I'm having just, me. I feel so blessed to have you as my friend and to have grown up oh, with I you. The same. I mean, Megan and I go way back. We, 
used to like, she dealed with me being like the bitchiest little bossy <laughs> friend in second grade. Oh um, and I would call her up like every Wednesday and we would come to school in the same exact outfit all the way from what we wore to our socks to we had to pack our the hair. same lunch. Our hair had to look the same. <laughs> yeah, we've got, I'm sure we've got pictures around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have one where we're like doing the splits and like we both were wearing those like Skechers skate shoes. Skate, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. cute. But, um, but yeah, thanks same. so much. This means a lot that you came on here and thanks we've for having me back on again sometime. Absolutely. Right. Hopefully Thanks, the world man. will be in a better state. We can come visit you in Michigan yeah, or something. Do. do it in person. You're always welcome. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.